0: Thank you guys for joining the True Sports Physical Therapy podcast. Awesome conversation with Dr. Dan Pope. Everyone knows who Dr. Dan Pope is. Really one of the good guys in our sports physical therapy field has carved out a niche and a reputation for working with high level strength and fitness athletes. In this conversation, he really breaks down how he evaluates specifically knee pain or athletes with knee pain and how he takes them all the way back to what it is they love doing. Dr. Dan really highlights how he increases compliance, how he maximizes his outcomes, and really how he approaches the entire field. It's really a far reaching conversation. I look forward to your feedback. As always, you can DM us at True Sports PT or email me directly Yoni, Y O N I, at True Sports PT.com. Of course, we're always looking to add to our awesome team of 40 sports physical therapists. We are now throughout the state of Maryland, into Pennsylvania, and now into Delaware. If you're interested in joining us, please shoot us an email. You can send it directly to me, Yoni at True Sports PT. Um, you can send us your resume and cover letter via DM at True Sports PT on Instagram. We can't wait to hear from you. Without further ado, Dr. Dan Pope. Welcome into the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. We got Dr. Dan Pope with us everyone knows who dan pope is um this guy is a legend in our sports pt world um you guys the audience asked to have him on i'm thrilled to get him on thrilled to get a little bit of his time um and we're gonna we're gonna switch it up a little bit usually i ask the the guests now to just tell us about yourself in a little bit of a flip i'm just gonna throw questions at you we're gonna start with a lightning round so that we can pull some information out and then anything i missed you fill in afterwards ready dan I'm ready. Okay. I love it. Where were you born, Dan?
1: Camden, New Jersey. Beautiful vacation spot.
0: Beautiful this time of year. hmm Where did you go to undergrad and PT school?
1: Rutgers University, uh, New Jersey, born and raised and educated. Undergrad and grad.
0: Oh, wow. Now, what do you wish your grad program taught you that they didn't?
1: Hmm. I like my grad program a lot. And I obviously wish they taught me a little bit more about strength and fitness and that type of thing, but they weren't able to, there's too much stuff you have to learn in university. So, you know, I liked it. Good job guys.
0: What do you think Rutgers did better than maybe some of the, the other universities that you're seeing?
1: Yeah. So it's public. So it's cheaper. And I think that's really important just because it's so dang expensive for PT education. Uh, I thought my orthopedics classes were great. Um, my professor, Dr. Creatures kept it super simple. Um, we had another staff, Mark Butler, and I got to do a clinical affiliation there and super smart guy and learned a ton. And I loved it.
0: Dude, we don't hear that enough. That's amazing. I should have gone to Rutgers. <laughs> um, that, that's, that's super cool. Um, tell, me, tell me your favorite pathology to treat.
1: Mm. Femoral acetabular impingement syndrome.
0: Why do you love that?
1: Well, I like a lot of things, so it's tough, but um, I guess I have a special interest in the hip. I didn't learn a lot about it in in PT school. And then um, I learned a little bit by reading and also kind of watching lectures and people present on it. And it was like an underserved population, Uh, still is, right? More research emerging about it. And then I started to become kind of one of the go-to guys at Champion, which is a little bit hilarious. And I, I made some some connections with some surgeons over my course of time out in Colorado. They were all Philippon trains. So he's like a big wig in the uh, hip arthroscopy world. And they introduced me to some other docs in the Boston area. And I made some good friendships and we just had a lot of referrals. And then I, I just started treating lots and lots of hips, pre-op, post-op, just kind of a cool population.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, ironically, I was in grad school in my ortho coursework and I had pretty bad groin pain in Here's how poorly it was relayed to me, what FAI was. I went to the doc. I'm like, I have a hernia. And they like, what's, I thought you were in PT school. I'm like, no, it's a hernia. It's a growing pain. Like, clearly. Anyway, clearly FAI. I think, listen, that was a long time ago. So I, hopefully we've kind of come up to date, um, mostly with what, Dan, you've been putting out as to how to treat FAI. But um, definitely, definitely underserved. Um, what's your least favorite pathology to treat?
1: Hmm. I would say, and I like this too, but it's it's a little bit frustrating. Uh, but I'd say gluteal teninopathy. And the reason why is I just find it super stubborn. And especially in that postmenopausal population, I have a lot of kind of fit women that are postmenopausal and they get, get this kind of lateral hip pain that tends to just stick around and be super stubborn and recalcitrant you know, regardless of what we do, all the treatments. So that's a tough one, but I do enjoy it too. So there's that.
0: Yeah. That sounds like what we used to throw in the bucket of, uh, greater trochanteric bursitis, right? Like that's what we used to call that. And they're freaking stubborn. How do you start to learn how to beat that? I know that's not the topic of this pod, but how do you start to learn how to beat that?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I learning, right. I mean, that's a big one. I think, uh, Alison Grimaldi is probably the big influence for me. Uh, I think she's a big, big name in the, basically all around the hip. So hamstring, but also glute medius, tendinopathy, uh, learned from her, read some of her research, listened to her on some podcasts, um, read some more. I know that, um, one of the big issues that's interesting right now is postmenopausal women have changes in their hormones, right? So one of the things that they're trying right now is hormone replacement therapy. I'm aware of one study anyway, that showed a positive effect, um, so there's potentially some stuff going on there from a hormonal perspective, which is generally not something we think about with tendon issues, but it it definitely is. So, yeah, just learning, reading, I guess. Long story. Yeah,
0: it sounds like that's your solution <laughs> to everything. Um, tell me, tell me if that's your least favorite uh, pathology, although you say you love it. What's the most frustrating thing about being a sports PT? Period.
1: Man, I don't know. It's I like sports PT a lot, so that's actually a little challenging. I guess it's, um, when you know, you can't help someone is
0: tough.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Line drive straight to my face here. Um, I would say that it stinks when you can't help someone that's tough. It's hard to work with in season athletes that, you know, they've got, you know, a big hamstring strain injury and the chance of them getting back for a big game is maybe not going to happen. Right. Or big competition, whatever it is. Um, I don't like the idea of having to refer someone to a surgeon i know that's the the best place for them to go Um, but i'm getting more comfortable with that i just kind of think about if i was in the patient's shoes and i had a physical therapist say you know what i think you probably need to get this looked at by a surgeon i mean it's not like a feel-good moment um for anyone uh but the other part is that i think it's you need it right if that's the best thing that the patient can have long term we're gonna need to tell them to do that so
0: And and that's why we went into this, right? I used to take it as a massive blow to my own ego, like, I can't help you. But thats it's just not about that, right? It's about the person in front of you. So if you can find that surgeon um, that they need to go to or wherever it is, sometimes it's primary care, sometimes it's it's just primary care sports or whatever, that goes such a long way, I have found. So I definitely know where you're coming from. Um, Last piece of our lightning round, if you're not working out, studying, reading, or – probably walking a dog I don't know you seem like a dog guy and you have one hour to yourself what are you doing Dan
1: that's a tough one because um, I love those things but I have a, a I'm a dad I have a son a Do you have a dog no dogs oh, okay. I like dogs I'm not anti-dog we just don't have one so okay. um but yeah I have a young son so spending time with him is probably my favorite thing spend time with my family um I'm a family guy now I guess so that's it I'd say
0: okay okay fine <laughs> Fair. Good answer. Tell me what we missed in your bio, Dan. Tell us a little bit about your track and just tell you how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I feel like this story is more and more common nowadays, but um, I kind of started my personal training journey um, in undergraduate. I was always the guy who loved strength, loved fitness, loved wellness, right? I was a guy that would bring rusty chains into my local gym to try to do like west side barbell methods, dynamic efforts. I would leave rust all over the floor. One of the chains was probably 15 pounds. The other one was like 25, you know, grunting and screaming with my friends in the gym, loving every second of it, right? So it just naturally lent me to doing more personal training um, because it really is, that's my passion. And when I graduated, I started to find that working as a personal trainer, I'd have a ton of clients that had pain. And it was tough because I wanted them to get better. I wanted to learn more about why they were getting hurt. And I would send them to some local physical therapists and I would get the typical like, oh gosh, you know, your patient got hurt because you were deadlifting with them, or your patient got hurt because you're doing kettlebell swings, or your patient got hurt because you're doing overhead press. Those are dangerous. And that was a terrible relationship with the physical therapist because my, my basically my clientele would all leave me <laughs> because they think I was doing dangerous stuff, right? And in my mind, I was like, this makes no sense. Like exercise is good for you. We know exercise is good for you. Strength training is good for you. There's a myriad of benefits, right? This this can't be the right answer. Um, So it kind of led me to start to learn more about physical therapy and get an interest from it. And there are actually a lot of strength coaches and trainers out there that do a phenomenal job with pain and injury. But I had a big ego and still do at this point. And I wanted to be kind of the best in terms of working with, my clientele that had pain and try to help them out. And my thought was, you know, what is the profession that spends the most time uh, working with injuries? And that was physical therapy. So it was kind of a next natural step to go to physical therapy school. And during physical therapy school, I continued working as a personal trainer. When I graduated, I did the same. When I went to PT school, the goal is never that I wanted to be a a regular physical therapist. I, I really just wanted the knowledge so I could do better working with kind of strength and fitness clientele. So when I graduated, I did start working full-time as a physical therapist along with personal training, but I started to build a niche working in strength and fitness. So at the time, mostly CrossFit, but also powerlifting, Olympic weightlifting, just weight training, strength in general, runners. And I just kind of fulfilled that niche there to try to help those folks out because at the time it was a very underserved population. Uh, I think what's good is that that's switched. So I think if you still go to the average physical therapist and you're an athlete, right? especially if you're a barbell athlete, the physical therapist probably be a little bit confused about how to help you just because they're not really aware of that sport. Uh, But I think in general, it's gotten a lot better. Um, But that's the niche that I found myself in. That's my true love and passion.
0: Yeah. What what year did you start? um, What year did you make that switch from strength coach to PT?
1: I graduated 2013, 2008 to 2010. I worked full time as a strength coach, personal trainer. Then I went to PT school, worked as a trainer throughout there and then when I graduated, I started uh, full-time as a therapist and worked part-time as a CrossFit coach. So, and then I gave up CrossFit coaching a few years ago because I was doing way too much, <laughs> yeah. not because I don't like
0: it. No, I can imagine. Um, Your timeline sounds familiar. I mean, I, I graduated in '08. Dude, we didn't, PTs didn't know crap about barbells. And, and like, it wasn't until like, I found like Supple Leopard and Kelly Storette was I like, you know what? Like, we can, PTs can actually treat athletes, or or here's the Bible because it just wasn't out there. So I think like you're, and you're probably one of the reasons that we've come a long way. Holy cow! To think about it, in a short time. Thank you. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. High praise. High praise. I and mean, I throw um, compliments around like manhole covers. So it, it's not it's not often, but but I think you have been a big piece of that, and that's what that's what gets us fired up to treat, and that's what gets the audience. That's why they're like get Dan Pope on. So. I want to pull your knowledge as much as possible for this audience, okay? So you, ha- you already have a long-standing course out on just knee rehabilitation, intro to the knee. So I-, I wanted to pick your brain along that, whether it be patellar tendonitis, quad tendonitis, meniscal, whatever it is, what does your knee evaluation look like?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think this is pretty similar to most other evaluations. I- I'm always telling folks need to be looking out for red flags. And maybe it's a yellow flag. I'm not sure we'd call some of these things, but it's not like we're looking for cancer of the knee necessarily, but we are looking for, does this person need to be referred out for something else that's going on? Is this an ACL tear? Do we have some sort of reparable meniscus tear, right? That needs to be seen by a surgeon, maybe get that opinion, right? Um, But largely I start off by looking at the knee. Well, I mean, really it's subjective. So you're, you're getting a lot of information about how this person got hurt in the first place if it is one of these all right i need to maybe refer out you're looking at probably something that was more acute in nature i was skiing i twisted my knee i felt a pop it got swollen uh, i went down to the bottom of the mountain and then they looked at my knee and told me i need to get some imaging right maybe it's a soccer injury it's twisting or i was doing let's say a box jump and twisted or i was in the bottom of squad and i felt a pop and it was really swollen right so i think you're getting most of the information from that subjective If you have someone who has, let's say, a gradual onset of pain, kind of hurts behind the kneecap, hurts with deep squatting, I'm already thinking more like, all right, patellofemoral pain, right, or based on where they're pointing (laughs) of their, you know, symptoms, is it right on the quad tendon, is it right on the patellar tendon, so on the side of the joint, back of the joint, so you get a lot of information just subjectively asking people what's going on, Uh, and then from there, I'm I'm usually looking at any swelling left to right, looking any different left to right i'm looking at range of motion if someone is limited with extension or flexion i'm starting to think maybe you have some joint pathology there again i'm asking questions about symptom location so is on the side the front start poking around joint line tenderness anything funky going on there if i start to suspect there is some sort of meniscus pathology i may start doing some special tests from that perspective um go
0: through there. what do you really rely on
1: hmm well, I'd say for more meniscus, I'd say range of motion is good. Joint line tenors is pretty good. Standard McMurray's. Um, Thessaly's is kind of hit or miss, I'd say, for that. Uh, Lachman's test for ACL. Um, varus valgus testing, generally speaking. Um, those are kind of my ligamentous tests. SAG sign, you know.
0: Yeah, okay, gotcha. Now, um, going along a little bit more of that chronic presentation, right? they start telling, cause you probably see this more in that strength and fitness population. Um, what questions are you asking to tease out kind of where you're taking that evaluation?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a big one. So if I, if, it, if I'm, if it's someone who's in strength and fitness, pretty sure they're not dealing with something that's traumatic and they need to go to the doctor right away. Right. In odd cases, someone will potentially tear the meniscus in the bottom of a squat, right? Or maybe with a box jump going wrong and they twist their knee or something and they're dealing with some sort of tibiofemoral pathology. Uh, but largely, I think the bulk of folks you'll see in the gym that have knee pain are dealing with some sort of patellofemoral pain far and away. And you will see some quad or patellar tendinopathy. Um, generally speaking, patellar tendinopathy is more common than quad tendinopathy, although this is an anecdote. I tend to see a lot of quad tendinopathy. I see a lot of folks that have pain above the kneecap, hurts with squatting or lunging or step-ups. I think far and away, I'm starting to ask questions about what aggravates this, because that's going to give me more information about how to treat, right? So it's, you know, in terms of diagnosis, we get super fancy, but really at the end of the day, I, I want to get at what is causing this person pain, what are their goals, how can we as quickly as possible, get them back to exercise, right, and target them with the best exercise they are going to help get, get them back to training based on where they're at in terms of irritability, aggravation, strength, all of that stuff, so so what movements hurt you? All right, squat. What percentage of your one rep max? What kind of squat do you use? Um, just start digging more into their training programming and which movements bother them. Uh, that's kind of my next step, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think, and I think one of the reasons as I hear you talk about it that's going to help you with that athlete in front of you is you definitely speak their language. Right. So when you start talking about those, whether it be CrossFit movements or if you're talking to a sport, actually, one of our therapists here is, is a lacrosse guru, Dr. Tim Stone. And he said um, first question he asked a lacrosse athlete that walks in, say it's for me for or whatever it is like, hey, what position do you play? Oh, awesome. Like, does it bother you when you and he'll throw out a lacrosse term because you just want to get that connection. I, I would assume the same thing transpires in that strength and fitness world, right? Yeah,
1: it's huge. I'm a huge rapport guy. I think that's enormous. So that usually when people are coming in, they're being referred from someone else within the fitness world. Uh, so usually I just start talking about that, you know, talk about things that are going on, current events, how's the CrossFit open? Are you watching this, you take a look at this athlete yeah. and it puts people at ease. I think it's it's huge, especially where I'm at as a cash-based physical therapist, because if people don't like you, they can just leave, Right. And uh, your outcomes are are terrible if people don't stick around.
0: <laughs> By the way, even if you're taking insurance, because I take insurance, they could still leave, Dan. Yeah,
1: that's true. They could just go down the uh, the street, right?
0: Not like we're holding them. But, um, okay, good point. Now, if it's more chronic, right, and you're thinking patellar tendonitis, quad tendonitis, where do you take it from there if that's a diagnosis in your head?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I guess I'm thinking about which exercise would be most beneficial. So if you're dealing with, like, a patellar tendinopathy, a quad tendinopathy, I want to give them exercises that are evidence-based, right? So we want to try to strengthen the quad for the most part, but I also want to make those exercises as specific as possible to the patient's goals, right? So it depends on the individual. So if you, let's say you have an Olympic weightlifter with a quad um, some athletes will kind of blow through their pain and they keep training and they don't stop at all. And it just bothers them all the time. And some athletes will stop all of their training, right? So I think the first step is to figure out where they're at in terms of irritability and then try to give them some guidelines on what's okay to push and what's not okay to push. We go out in the gym, we try to load them up a little bit with different exercises, and we try to keep their training as similar as possible to what the current training plan is supposed to be without aggravating the area and allowing them to keep working towards their goals. So oftentimes we don't have to change a ton, right? So if I have an athlete that has, I don't know, a quad tenopathy and they're tolerating squatting fairly well, but it just hurts when they get above, like, 85 90 percent of their one rep max then we might just stick around 80 percent for a while and for the olympic lifts maybe we're cautious with heavy heavy cleans but oftentimes let's say the snatch feels fine just because it's not as much load so we only really have to modify heavy squats maybe heavy cleans maybe and the rest of their training is kind of exactly the same right and then from there I, i try to give some additional accessory exercises to help to target the tendon right and there's lots of options um, but i 'd say like a heel tap is a big one single legged squat and like a slam board, very evan based exercise. I love those a lot. I love adding a terminal knee extension to it, so a band behind the back of the knee, pumping that thing up is phenomenal. Uh, so more research coming out about blood flow restriction training, which I think is great adjunct to the rest of their training. we could kind of pop that in as an accessory exercise and choose some quad exercises with it. It could be squatting, lunging step ups. Um, And then really trying to give them a well-rounded program on top of that is usually how I would go about it.
0: This is why great PTs need to be great strength coaches, right? You've got to be able to look at that entire program and figure out kind of where they are, like you said, what their goals are, but what they've currently been doing and loading. I want to back up because this is a great example. Let's get a little bit into those weeds. If the patient or the athlete doesn't know that it's a given percentage of their one rep max that is causing their quad tendonitis or pain, how do you tease that out in the clinic?
1: Well, just a lot of questions. I, usually, patients will tell me that. You know, I, I had someone with back pain the other day, and it was funny because I have a student right now, and this this confuses the heck out of students, right? So, a patient comes in, low back pain. They go through the entire process, you know, A to Z examination, zero special tests with everything, no pain, toe touch, back extension, slump. Everything is negative, but one of the pieces of information the person leaves, and subjective, is that. My back hurts when I get to five rep max and higher, right? So you have someone that's not very irritable at all, right? And essentially, they can tolerate everything in their daily life. And you have a student that has a hard time working with that person just because you have to really push to provoke that uh, that pain. So usually, the patient will talk about it, Right. Um, but largely I start asking questions about what hurts you, which movements, what weights, can you tolerate this movement? If you drop the loads down a little bit, can you not? And then after we get through that whole subjective process, I'll go in the gym and actually lift with them a little bit. So if I don't know, or if the patient doesn't know because they've stopped all their training, uh, I work with a lot of psychopaths that will just blow through all their pain. So they have a good idea of what hurts and what doesn't, you know what I mean? Oftentimes you're trying to get folks to admit that some things actually hurt because they don't want to say that. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm going to take it away from them if I, you know, if they say that it hurts. Yep. Um, but you do see some folks that they, they basically stop, you know, they haven't lived it in a while. They're just very fearful of moving. And I think the answer there is you go in the gym, you try loading up some stuff and it's an experimental process. And you just educate the patient like, Hey, this is experimental. We're not sure what's going to feel good and what doesn't. But at the end of the day, we want to get you back to a strength training. And if we pick the right exercises from a strength training perspective, it's going to help you with your pain too. So
0: And then how much you mentioned starting to load up that tendon, which is obviously going to be somewhat provocative. How do you educate the patient on that process? Like, Hey, this is going to hurt. Um, and B to what level are you willing to, um, create their symptoms? Yeah,
1: for sure. I think it really depends on the individual. Um, so I largely, I use the pain monitoring model, which essentially it's been studied in the calf and Achilles. It's been studied in the patellar tendon. So I think it's super relevant for, for those folks. So essentially you do, let's say a step down task and then you rate your pale on or pain on a scale of zero to 10, right? And let's say it's like a five out of 10 and then you do a bunch of exercises. And as long as those exercises are below a five out of 10 pain wise, and the next day when you do your step down task, it's five out of 10 back to baseline. Then those movements you did in the gym, that you did the day prior are okay. They're acceptable, right? So. Um, there's a bit of research and this is in the Achilles, this is in the rotator cuff in the low back, that if you push into some pain, you might actually have a, a better short term outcome and at least the same long term outcome as folks that don't push through pain with the rehab exercises. I try to flip it. I think psychologically that's super helpful for patients because oftentimes they're avoiding pain or they don't understand pain and you just let them know, like if you follow these guidelines, it might actually make you better a little faster, Right. And that can flip the switch for some folks to let them know. Um, but like I said, some people are the opposite. Some people are blowing through way too much pain and you're trying to pull back a little bit. So yeah. it's tough for PTs. You, you really have to try to make a, a split-second decision, right, based on a little bit of information and the person you met, you know, one time to try to figure out whether you're able to push or you need to pull back a little bit.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's why you want to ensure, and you alluded to this previously, you want that second visit. Like how do I give the patient enough and enough confidence to say, hey, I'm going to come back, because then you can start giving better educated guesses as to how they're going to respond to treatments, but also style, right? So that, that goes back to, like, a little bit of that rapport. So coming back to that um, quad tendonitis or tendinopathy, um, you mentioned you would go to some type of heel tap. That's, like, the first thing, like, on your list. Um, how do you, does that become their homework? Is that one of your go-tos with homework?
1: Yeah, I guess it really depends. I think the heel tap is pretty good, but it honestly can be pretty provocative if someone's like has a really flared up tendon. So I may start with a partial range of motion split squat or a very short step up or something along those lines. Maybe if they can't handle something that's unilateral, we'll start with a squat. Um, So it really depends on how irritable that patient is, right? Um, If a patient wants me to write their entire program, which I do oftentimes, and I can just Change all the parameters of the training as much as I can. What I like to do is train them three days per week with their lower body. And I want to make that look like a a regular lower body strength training program. I want to kind of make it look like a training program. So if they're Olympic weightlifter and they're supposed to be squatting three days a week, there may actually be three days per week of squatting if they're able to handle that. Right. Uh, But largely I'm probably going to have a squat at least once on one of those days, some sort of deadlift variation on another day. And then I'm probably going to have let's say two to four exercises to strengthen the lower extremity with probably two of those exercises being quaddy in nature. Right. And then I may actually have them do some additional quad work on off days. Right. I don't know that you need to do that much, but if you look largely through some of the tendinopathy literature, folks are doing something along the lines of exercises every other day to exercise as much as twice a day. So at least in my mind, three days per week is probably a minimum effective dose. And if you want your, you know, rehab program to look more evidence-based then adding in a few extra days is probably going to help them out. Although, you know, this as well, we don't really know what the best dosage of exercise is for these problems. And it looks like there's, I hate this saying, I love this saying, I say it all the time because I love cats, but there's more than one way to skin a cat, right? And at this point, we don't really know if doing exercises twice a day is better than every other day. And oftentimes I'm just like, all right, let's go minimum effective dose. Let's make this training program look like the training program that you want to. And if you're getting better over the course of time, you're reach, reading your goals, reaching your goals, then good. We're on the right track.
0: Yeah, I think it's tough to know uh, by and large, what is that minimal effective dose, right? That's definitely a challenge. Are there exercises that you say, hey, you got to do this twice a day? If you're looking for a certain
1: outcome. Not too much. I will mess around with that for, let's say, hamstring strain injuries. Only reason is that these folks usually get hurt in the middle of a season, right? Happens all the time. And, you know, I've, I've read some research about mTOR and how long that gets turned on after you exercise. Some research saying it gets turned on for four hours at a time and then it shuts down for a bit. If we want to stimulate that hamstring to heal as fast as humanly possible, I may end up giving athletes tougher exercises once a day and then maybe a couple other times throughout the course of the day some easier exercises just to move this as long, along as fast as humanly possible just because they're in the middle of their season and they have something important they need to get back to. But otherwise, for most tendon problems, I'm not loading that frequently. I'm probably doing something like once a day, once every other day.
0: Okay, and then what do, if, if you're putting them through that, um, I think you described it, very technically, as quadty movements. Um, if you're doing that twice a week, um, you, maybe you get more of a hinge once a week. And if you want to hit them again in those um, days that fall in between, what do those exercises look like? Yeah, something that's a little bit
1: lower level. And I think I skipped over that. So, three days a week, you're doing something heavier. And the other days a week, you're doing something a little easier. So, that might be a, a knee extension machine, right? Or a sissy squat for higher repetitions, something along those lines. So something that's not super stressful to the tendon, something that's maybe slower, higher reps, maybe some BFR on those off days, uh, but stimulates the tendon a bit in a different way.
0: Okay. Um, Yeah, thanks for answering that. Any other things pop out to you when you look at that quad tendonopathy very early stage when they come into you? Anything else you want to make sure you hit or check or test?
1: Yeah. Uh, There's a bit of research looking at, let's say, Thomas Test and basically straight leg raises and showing if you improve those, it maybe helps your outcomes. Um, but largely I, I kind of jump straight to loading if I can, you know, and I think you have to look at the person. What's that?
0: Sound like a guy.
1: Yeah, I know that's, that's my favorite. Um, but there's also an argument to be made that you may alter someone's technique. Let's say that someone is very, very upright with their squatting, their knees are shooting forward a ton. Then they're just really loading the quad tendon a lot with their exercises I think this becomes a problem for someone that has chronic, chronic issues that's having a hard time getting out of pain and staying out of pain. Sometimes I'll make a a change in their exercise technique to make it a little more hip dominant, right? This becomes a problem because if you're working with an Olympic weightlifter and they need to be very upright, we kind of have to get to the point where they can tolerate that position. So my preference is probably going to be to get them back to the position that's best for their performance. But if we need to make a change, at least temporarily, we will, right? And that may mean mobilizing certain structures or adopting a different squat style or something along those lines. So, I mean, I I think the lowest hanging fruit is to look at load, but obviously you need to treat the individual. You need to look at all those, you know, parameters, mobility, how they move, look at their training program, volumes, intensities, all of that.
0: Yeah, I love that. Okay, so it took a little bit to get towards that Thomas Test range of motion that I was waiting to hear about. So how do you program that into someone's home exercises?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think, uh, mobility in general, um, it's kind of a personal passion of mine just because I think tell- Kelly Starrett was starrett I don't even know how to say his name appropriately, but Sorry, I, he was good stuff. Yeah. Um, he was a, one of the first guys that got us thinking about this stuff, right? Mobility wad and how important it is. And, um, I started to look into some of the literature just because I tend to do that. i like that to have really some, I just I just feel pretty strongly that I think we we don't do a great job as a profession. I think we're getting better, but you know the analogy I make is that if you go to the doctor, right, and you have some sort of illness and you need a medication, the doctor is going to say take two pills a day, twice a day for two weeks. And if you come back and it's not working, they bump it up to three, right? And if that's not working, they change the medication. So doctors don't normally say, oh, this is your problem. Here's a, a bunch of pills. Go ahead and take them, right? You need to you need to take more pills. They give you a very specific dosage. And I think you'll find that there is a specific dosage of stretching that works well for folks, at least for static stretching, five or more days per week around 60 seconds is appropriate. So you may do some sort of stretch, like, I don't know, half kneeling, hip flexor, stretch, something along those lines, uh, 60 seconds, five or more days per week. I'm also a huge fan of, it's funny because we used to call it eccentrics. If you look through some of the literature, um, now it's called more weighted stretching, right? Yeah. But essentially, if you load someone into a stretch, right? So think about if you're doing, um, I don't know, a loaded Thomas test where you have a weight on someone's foot and you're dropping their leg uh, under control into a full stretch position. That would be an eccentric or weighted stretch. Quite a bit of research to show that's as effective as static stretching. And the other thing is interesting is the frequency doesn't have to be as high. So you can get away with doing that two to three days per week, right? Um, I think at the end of the day,
0: the gold that I'm pulling out of you, that's awesome. And and that's a, that's a great little tidbit. Now, why do you call that eccentric and not an isometric stretch?
1: Yeah. You know, I think it's just semantics and even when, so there's a couple like meta analysis, systematic reviews are looking at eccentrics for improving mobility. When you go back and look at the studies and the methods and the exercises they choose, they're, they're really just doing a weighted stretch and usually focusing on the eccentric portion. Right, but they will oftentimes have a concentric portion to it as well. And I think some of the newer literature just kind of like was like, it's not just ex- eccentrics, this is weighted stretching. <laughs> so they just call it something different, yeah. you know. Um, so largely when I prescribe these exercises, I just have them utilize a slow eccentric and a pause at end range into the stretch. I think that's an important part. So a lot of folks will say, like, oh, strength training improves the range of motion. So just strength train, do like Nordic hamstring curls to try to improve your hamstring mobility. That's probably not going to work just because you're not taking that into an end range stretch, right? Under load. I think that's probably key. Uh, I think you will find that folks that train in a partial range of motion will potentially get stiffer, right? You see that in like power lifters. power lifters, are very stiff in the upper body. Um, the stiffer they are usually the better they are too. Um, and it's mostly because probably they're training with heavy loads in a partial range, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I love hearing this because there, there, I had a couple um, athletes that worked with a, strength coach who only works in these partial ranges with high loads and just absolutely craps on any program that isn't solely that i'm like i don't think that makes sense and also i don't think dan pope thinks that makes sense
1: i that guy's terrible he's such a such a horrible person
0: i know but why but guys train with him it's nuts he's a horrible person i like that's that's aggressive
1: yeah i I try not to crap on um (laughs) i hate one of my pet peeves i'm sorry i'm I'm derailed a little bit but I hate how much we love to throw each other under the bus in this profession. Um, it's bad. I feel like there's way more people out there producing content talking about how everyone else is wrong as opposed to trying to help (laughs) the
0: profession. I don't, don't, by the way, you think it's just our profession? You think this is society?
1: It's probably society to your point, right? But I I do think there are some, some industries that are a bit better than we are. I don't know. there are I, – I, specifically on YouTube, there's a lot of people that are super helpful in trying to help people in general. Um, and it's funny. Like a lot of folks have gotten very popular and the physical therapy world doesn't even know about them just because they bypass all that riffraff, you know? Yep. But yeah, no. I, you're right.
0: For sure. Now, notice, we, we're such great dudes. We didn't even mention the guy's name. So good job, Dan. <laughs> just taking the high road. I appreciate that. Um, okay. So where were we? We were talking about loaded – stretching, essentially, right? Which by the way, sounds very FRC to me, functional range conditioning, right? So it's like your ability to get to these end ranges, own those end ranges, potentially load those end ranges. Are you telling me you've seen outstanding benefit in the quad tendinopathy group with those interventions?
1: Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if it's the stretching specifically that's making things better. It's hard to know, right? You get this confirmation bias. You're like, you know what? I loaded the quad and I did the the stretching and my patient got better. You need to stretch, right? It's like, I don't know what's necessarily making it better. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there is a compressive element, at least for the quad tendon in the bottom of squat. So what's interesting about the quad tendon and maybe the reason why I see more quad tendinopathy as opposed to patellar tendinopathy in weightlifters anyway, is because when you get to the very bottom position of a squat, the quad tendon actually goes into the patella femoral joint and just shares a little bit of loading and surface area with the patella. So you get a compressive element of the quad tendon pushing into the joint. And we're not exactly sure. I mean, there's a ton of hubbub right now, especially with subacromial impingement syndrome. You know, it's funny because let's say with glute medius tenonopathy, there's this big push of like, okay, there's a compressive element of the gluteal tendon wrapping around the greater trochanter that's causing these issues, right? But then in subacromial impingement, we're like, there's no compression of the (laughs) chromium on the tendon. That's not causing tendinopathy, right? Um, I don't know, but there may be an element of compression on the quad 10 that's causing more pathology. It'd be my guess that that's probably occurring a little bit, you know, and the reason why you may see it more in weightlifters so if we want to maybe reduce some of that compressive element, if we stretch, maybe that unloads it somewhat, right? You can make that theory. Um, I will try to add that into my patient's programming. It's just that I don't know that we need it to get folks better based on the literature we already have. Um, and I haven't seen any studies that say stretching into Thomas versus not. Um, I may be wrong on that because I think there's that one study I mentioned r- prior was looking at straight leg raise, as well as Thomas test versus exercises. So I will add into the program, but I'm just not sold on it being something that's going to make your outcomes way better.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I totally hear that. It's interesting you're you're mentioning like these waves we go in in terms of how we treat, right? So now we love loading the quad. Dan Pope says load your freaking quad and you're going to get better, right? When I came out of school, you know what it was? Do some clamshells right? And I didn't even hear you mention clamshells. So tell me where hip strength falls into this quad tendinopathy group.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one. And I think it is relevant. You know, I think largely if you look at the research on quad tendinopathy, patellar tendinopathy, loading the quad seems to be the best thing um, based on the evidence we have right now for patellofemoral pain, I think you can make the argument to load the hip. Um, We do have research to show that if you just load the hip, or just load the knee, you tend to have a similar outcome. Also has some research. If you add the two together, you tend to have a better outcome, right? So I do think that patellofemoral pain is probably a little bit of a different beast in comparison to patellar teninopathy. Um, but going back to, let's say that athlete that's very, very quad dominant that loads up the quads a lot, loads up the patellar tendon a lot. They may, may end up getting more patellar teninopathy just because that's their kind of movement strategy. And, It's interesting because you'll see some research that folks that have better jump performance tend to have more tendinopathy. And it's like, are they just better at loading up those tendons and they do it more often with more speed, you know, and that maybe lends itself to more tendinopathy over the course of time. So I think that if an athlete's primary movement strategy is to move through their quad and that makes them a good athlete, then I want to try to restore the ability to do that. You can maybe make the argument And there are some case studies that do this, which I think is, you know, smart. If you change someone's movement strategy or landing strategy to be more hip dominant, get their hips stronger, teach them to land in a more hip dominant fashion, teach them how to squat in a more hip dominant fashion, you're going to offload the patellar tendon and quad tendon. So I think you can make an argument that you can train the hip and then teach someone a different strategy and help to solve their issue. I say solve because I think at the end of the day, you're trying to reestablish the ability for the quad and patellar tendon to handle these loads. So I wouldn't stop loading the quad, yeah. but for long-term health for that athlete, it may require them to adopt a more hip-dominant strategy for landing or squatting. And I think that's where you make the argument for adding in some more hip strength. You know. Yeah,
0: yeah I, think, I think that makes a lot of sense, although keep them in their quad you got to get them back to their quad (laughs) they're gonna lose that explosiveness right
1: i it's it's pretty funny it it sounds like you're coming from a strength background a little bit too but back in the day when you were in the gym the hip was king you always have your heel down always you know and now it's like all right you got to isolate the quad and the calf and it's like what? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's crazy, but by, by the way, remember—not uh, you, but definitely me—when I came out of school it was knees behind toes. Like, if I would have been the first to Instagram with the handle knees behind toes, I'd be a billionaire. You'd be crushing it. I'd be, I'd be crushing it because that was king. Yeah. Honestly, you know, now we go the other way. Um, I think you just gotta—you gotta stay up on it. And what I appreciate about your your outlook is you're you're in the lab. You're treating like what's working. And, and I think that's a struggle I have with some of the education is are the professors are the researchers, are they treated? That's totally different. And that, that's why I like bringing guys like you on the pod, because this is true sports, physical therapy. Like you're doing it as, as we currently, um, as we talk basically. And so there's so much value in that. We don't just live in journals. We live in the gym.
1: Yeah, that's tough. I I think part of it is that as physical therapists, we shot ourselves in the foot just because,
0: in so many
1: ways. Yeah, it, we practice and, you know, in our defense, it's in terms of literature in physical therapy, it's, it's new, it's blossoming, we're pushing it more over the course of time. Uh, but physical therapists in general practice so differently, you know, from clinic to clinic, and, and that's, a, that's a bit of a problem, right? So I think that we're all kind of coming together. And there's this sense of elitism of like, evidence based is king. And I would agree, I think that's the way to go. Um, but oftentimes, our heroes are, are the researchers, and I think they should be. But that's also sometimes not fair to some of the expert clinicians and what they have found to be effective. And there's always this argument of like what evidence-based care is and ex- experience is part of that. But it's oftentimes maybe minimized over what a research study will say. And research is so nuanced, right? You know, it, a research will show a trend in a specific population. There's always going to be outliers. There's folks who do really well with one thing versus another. So it's very nuanced. And I appreciate you saying that. I think that is really important.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So, I, and that's why I love sharing as many tools as possible, right? Um, that that when things don't go the way the journal says they should go, uh, you know, what, what do you pull out? What do you do? So let me ask you this, anything passive, do you do any passive interventions in this quad tendinopathy group?
1: Yeah, I may. I may try a little bit. Um, oftentimes it depends on patient preference. Usually at, you know, at the gates, I'm trying as best I can to get them on an exercise program and get them to train, you know. Um, But I will utilize some quad soft tissue work. We can try some laser to the tendon, see if that helps them out over the course of time. Um, I think there is benefit to some of these. Oftentimes patients will get some pretty good pain relief from that. And if they do that and they're okay with the notion that manual therapies are more of a temporary thing, I'll keep going with it. I have no problem doing passive treatments. I know that they're if you say you do passion treat, passive treatments, you may get, like, nailed from one side of the physical therapy spectrum. But if you have a tendon issue, you have to load it. I mean, that's that's super important. Um, but I'll also do some soft tissue work to the quads, maybe some laser, a little bit of stretching. If people feel good doing it, I'll definitely do that. I have no problem with
0: that. Okay. Um, dry needling? Does that show up in your world?
1: I do dry needle a decent amount. I, I This is a pathology that I tend not to dry needle as much. Um, I will actually have some physiatrists, um, ask me to do more soft tissue work and dry needling in tendinopathy patients as part of a, a well-rounded program to help folks get better, right? So if the traditional loading is not working really well, they'll try something like extracorporeal shockwave therapy with manual therapy to the quad with some laser to the area. Uh, if that's not working, they may do some injections, additional injections, PRP, and they may do some like scar tissue surgical techniques. So I would say that, as part of a well-rounded program for recalcitrant conditions, I don't think that's a bad idea, right? So if it's not working well with what you're doing currently, adding some additional things might be helpful.
0: Yeah, yeah. again, this, this comes from a, l- a little bit more of the art side, but we, we have seen good evidence of increased contractility of a muscle immediately following dry needling, right? And so is there room for that? Uh, I'd, I'd much rather do that, um, spend my time needle maybe with electric stim to get a good quad contraction and then start loading them up. Obviously the loading up, I think does have to happen, but that's, that's one thing that, that I will tend to do. Um, if I'm going to needle, the other thing is, and it sucks is when it is super chronic is light that tendon up, um, with aggressive pistoning. And, and my goal with that is simply to encourage blood flow, create some micro trauma to the area. Um, I've seen it help. Right. Um, but it's got to be really, as Dan Pope would say, recalcitrant. <laughs> That's um, funny. For me, to, for me to dust that off.
1: Yeah. I, I think the other part too, a lot of folks that I'm dealing with, as a physical therapist, I work in this model that has a bunch of strength coaches too. Right. Mm-hmm. And we let the strength coaches be experts at what they are, strength coaching. So in terms of getting someone better and using our current model at Champion, Oftentimes, most of the loading is actually occurring with the strength coaches. So if they're still doing physical therapy, I'm actually looking for additional modalities to help that person, right? So maybe that is soft tissue work. Maybe it is dry needling. Maybe it's another type of modality to kind of get that person feeling like they're making some progress, right? To improve their outcomes, get them to stick around some more, uh, whatever it is. And then I'm doing less loading, right? So oftentimes when it's funny, because like if you look at fitnesspainfree.com, and you look at all the stuff that I espouse, it's, it's super exercise based, which I think it should be. Then if you watch me treat, oftentimes you're not seeing me do as much exercise. And a large reason for that is because a, they're loading with another coach, right? Cause that's part of our model or they're loading on their own. Mm-hmm. Just because if I have someone that I know is really good at training and I feel like I'm wasting their time, if they're just coming in, I'm watching them. Right. And I work with an odd population. I know that. Right. So like, I think the numbers, I was just looking at some of the numbers, like home exercise Um, home exercise program compliance is terrible. It's like 50% or less, depending on the study that you look at. So supervising someone while they do exercises is one of the best things for them. But I have a group of, you know, nutcases that like, you're just trying your best to get them to stop exercising so much. So I know they're going to do more exercise on their own and I'm okay with them doing it on their own. As long as they're not Doing something unsafe, or they need something that needs to be watched a little bit more closely. I'll certainly do that. Um, but to get back to my earlier point, I think that sometimes people are watching my treatment. Like, whoa, you 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 do a little less exercise than I thought you did. So
0: yeah, yeah. And I would I would think I'm the same way. I, I know I'm the same way actually. Like a great PT, we said as a great strength coach, are also awesome teachers, right? So if you can teach an athlete what to do, it, and I say this every single evaluation, this is your homework. Do it at home. Don't waste my time and come in here and make me watch you do it because you didn't do it at home. Um, And I'm not going to waste your time. I'm not going to show you something you've already done. And so what what I like to do, and I think it's so important, is you better be ramping and educating that home exercise program or training protocol every time they come in or however often they're coming in. But in office, and this is what you said, you're doing things that they're not doing on their own or they can't do on their own. Um, and that's the way I like to, uh, to approach it. So, yeah, they better be able to load. I'm working with a linebacker right now who, dude, he could teach me everything about strength and conditioning. I mean, this guy could teach um, Andrew Huberman about sports science. Like, he, he's just he's the smartest guy in the room always, and so what am I going to do? I'm looking to fill in those little gaps. He knows how to load. He knows how to progress single leg strength. It ain't rocket science like Mike Reinhold would say. So, just know where you are, know know who's in the room with you, and know what value you're going to be able to add that's why you teach them there um, yeah I
1: agree know. it you know i one of the things I, I have an opportunity to do is work with elite level coaches too, which is awesome. I work with a lot of coaches that are you know prior olympians, teach at a national level, international level, and when I have a patient that comes through the door, if they're working with one of those coaches. I'm not going to say that I know how to program for you for success. You know, that's stupid. You know, I'm, I'm going to help you from a rehab perspective and I'm going to communicate with the coach. The coach knows more than I do. So I have to be careful about what I say to do or not do because I could make that person worse.
0: Yeah. So, takes, yeah. um Well, you live someone in the baseball world, right? As baseball players would say, it takes a high level of feel. You got you to have feel. You got to know who's around you and, and who people are working with. So super valuable. Let me ask you about plyometrics. When do you get, let's say this is a field athlete quad tendinopathy. When do you start moving towards your plyometric activity? And what does that progression look like to you?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think, um, short answer as soon as possible. It depends on how irritable this person is. It also depends on in season versus off season. So there's a lot of variables I start thinking about from the get-go. So if someone's in season, last thing I want to do is throw plyometrics at them. They've got a ton of plyometrics. I'm basically trying my best to pull back on plyometrics, get that tendon to kind of calm down. Um, that's a population that would do really well with something like a blood flow restriction training. Just because you're doing slow reps, low loads, minimal stress to the tendon, we know that can be helpful for getting folks out of pain, right? Now, as soon as that person finishes their off season i'm probably going to have a period of time of unloading that tendon also in the off season you don't need to focus on plyometrics in the very beginning of your off season so you can make the argument that naturally that person is going to do less plyometrics as they start to build some strength and tolerance i'll naturally add it back in right if i have an individual that has i'll just say i had a runner the other day with um some achilles tendinopathy right and, um, they've stopped running temporarily because of the pain. So essentially they're at a point where they can't run without a limp because it's so painful, right? And generally speaking, if, if people can run with a five out of 10 or less or less than a five out of 10, excuse me, based on uh car and Silvernagel's research, I'm going to let them keep running, right? As long as next day they're, they're feeling back to their baseline. Um, but if they get to the point where they, they can no longer run, but they can tolerate, let's say double leg pogo jumps right? I may throw that into the program right away because I want to start getting the tenant exposed to what the tenant has to be able to handle, right? At a lower level to drive some adaptations there. So for that individual, I'm going to start them up with a loading program of different types of calf raises, maybe some kind of run specific strengthening for the hip quad and everything else and put some low level plyometrics in there with the hope that over the course of time they'll be able to handle more and more plyometrics and then eventually some sort of slow run progression, right? So I guess it really depends on the level of irritability. Um, The place where you have to be a little cautious, I think, where you won't want to throw plyometrics to someone right away is is post-op. So largely if I have someone that has pain that didn't just have a surgery, I'm going to meet them where they are in terms of the stresses they can handle and try to ramp them back to whatever activities you want to get back to. So Olympic weightlifter, they're not doing much plyometric or their plyometric is basically cleans and snatches, right? If I have a basketball player, they need to be able to jump. Runner has to be able to run. So I want to try to start progressing to that as fast as possible. If I have like a post-op rotator cuff, I'm not going to do plyometrics at week four, even if they would tolerate it, right? That would uh, be malpractice. You know, that's not not good. So I would say you have to protect that area after a surgery, but- for the majority of non-op patients, I'm trying to throw as much as they can handle, uh, based on the irritability of that tendon.
0: Yeah, I I like that takeaway because your answer really is summed up with as soon as humanly possible. That's when I'm putting them in, as long as it's not post-op, right? Yeah, that's
1: my whole deal, though. I I'm a huge exercise first guy. I think one of the things that we don't think about as physical therapists, and I understand we're not we're not in fitness, right? I am in fitness. That's my main thing. But if you tell people to stop exercising or you have an injury that derails their ability to exercise, they become less healthy, right? They become more expensive to the rest of the population. A ton of bad things occur from that perspective. So the more we can keep people active as much as possible, it improves your outcomes, right? Patients will like you more, right? But you're also making them more fit, stronger, less expensive, So many positive things occur when we do that. So that's what I'm trying to do, you know, step one to step, you know, whatever step you get to. I'm always thinking about that.
0: Yeah, keep them active, keep them moving. Uh, The value add there is unbelievable. You and I were talking before we hit record of the ability for the sports PT to now exist in these fitness facilities and how easy that is from a business standpoint. This is needs to be your mantra when you go into those places. We are going to keep your population healthy, active, continuing to move, continuing to do what they love. It's going to help the business you're walking into. It's going to help your own business. It's going to help the patient. Um, and that's what it's about, right? And that's what it's about. So that's an awesome summation. If they are a quad tendinopathy, what is that first round of plyos you're doing?
1: Yeah, so I'd probably get try it with a, a box jump to a like a sub-maximal box jump. I do like bilateral before unilateral, right? So I probably start with a double-legged jump and then progress to a single-legged jump. I also like to start with a box jump just because you don't have to handle the same deceleration. So you're jumping to an elevated surface. If you jump on the ground and land, you have to handle all the forces of landing from a height. The box jump, you jump to a height. So there's no, those those deceleratory forces, I don't even know if that's a word, are decreased. Yeah, so producing force first then we practice landing and then we add some power to it. And then we progress to single legged exercises. Same thing, probably box jump first, maybe a pogo jump first, progress to more dynamic movements, add more power, right? That type of thing.
0: Um, I love it. And does that happen before return to run if running was giving them pain?
1: I think it depends on the athlete. I usually don't see as many folks with patellar tendinopathy in the running world. Right. Although it certainly does happen. I think Chris Johnson, you've ever heard of Chris Johnson before in the PT world. Yeah. He had a really bad one for a while. Uh, I tend not to see it as frequently with runners as I would with like, let's say a, a court sport, basketball, volleyball. Those are the big ones that end up having those problems, you know. Um, but yeah, I will try to incorporate plyos as soon as I can with those folks. And it's going to be specific to whatever activity they need to get back to. So a runners not going to be doing super high level double legged jumps with turns and lands and all that stuff. But a basketball player might. Right. So,
0: yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, so you're still you're you're taking on students. Obviously, you're treating like crazy. Um, you got this. You're relaunching the certification. Um, tell us about where we're finding the cert, um, how we can get it, and who it's great for.
1: Yeah, for sure. I have a, a certification. It's a fitness pain free certification. I feel like everyone has a certification nowadays. So you got to get one. They're great. I gotta go. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but I've, um, it's about four years old. I continue to update it. So I always tell folks it's, it's basically like a university education of working with strength and fitness athletes, right. In a physical therapy setting. So I try to fill in all the gaps that you miss in physical therapy school. It's the certification I wish that I had coming out of PT school, right? Exercise technique, programming, exercise selection, basically how you treat a quad tendinopathy, rotator cuff tendinopathy in the strength and fitness world, right? I feel like that's an underserved population, but a very, very important population. So i tell you exactly how to do that. It's open for enrollment four times per year. So basically you can't sign up for it right now. Um but it is open for enrollment at the end of March if you sign up for uh the wait list, which you also get access to the fitness pain free mini course, which is kind of like a smaller version of the certification, get a get a taste of it, right? Um but yeah, the the certification launches at the end of this month. If you guys want more information, I'll send that over to you, Yoni, so you can you can share that with your listeners.
0: <clears throat> yeah, I, I would love to do that. I mean I think there's you're right. It is such a gap in PT's knowledge, and that's why I like getting guys like you on who are living, breathing and, and teaching appropriately. So one last piece of, of advice that you would share with the growing sports PT would be what, Dan Pope?
1: Yeah. Keep learning. Try to get better. I think that's important. Um, I can't hate on physical therapists that do this, right? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm a husband. I'm a, I'm a father. I have other interests in life, right? I get it when people go in, they punch the clock and they leave at the end of the day. I think you have to do that in, in some ways just to protect your sanity, right? But a lot of new grads, that come out super hungry to learn and grow. And then oftentimes they get beat down by life and they lose that. I'd say try to stay hungry as best you can. Keep learning, keep growing, find a population you love working with, you know, keep studying.
0: Find the population you love treating. Find a place where you have the leeway to treat them. You have the time to treat them. You have the facility to treat them. Um, I think that's how you stay. You keep that fire on.
1: I agree. You know, um, it's tough. It takes work, right? And we don't learn that in physical therapy school. So we don't learn about marketing. We basically are taught how to do physical therapy. Well, or at least we have the foundation of that. And then we start a job and then most people just kind of stay in that job and things stay the same for the rest of their career. You have all the power in the world to change that, you know, you can market, you can, you can find the population you want. You can draw them. You can start your own business. You can do entrepreneurial things on the side. You can do a combination of training with physical therapy. You can do cash based. There's so much cool stuff you can do, but it just takes a little extra effort and knowledge. And I think the barrier for physical therapists, if you compare us to like dentists or chiropractors, there's an expectation going into those professions. You have to be entrepreneurial right? And business minded. For physical therapists, there isn't. But you can still apply that to your own life as a physical therapist. And there's an enormous opportunity because most folks don't want to do it. So I'd say, you know, follow folks like yourself and me that are trying to do the same thing. Trying to find a fulfilling life in this career. We're not so, you know, upset every single day that we're not treating the patients we like, that we're overburdened, that we're burnt out, we're not getting paid enough, and the like. So...
0: Yeah, we're going to find those patients. Dan, freaking inspirational, dude. Good knowledge. Good fire. Thank you so much for joining us on the True Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. That was good, dude.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I always love being on these things. I really appreciate it. You're doing a bang-up job with your podcast. I was looking at all your guests. I'm like, man, you're killing it over here. Good job
0: appreciate that, but this is the highlight. Actually. Wow, number one. This is number one. I don't know
1: Plus if you can weeks. pin this to your podcast page, but you, you might think about it. That's probably going to get you some extra views, you know?
0: Great idea. Yes. <laughs> Let's see what Kelly Starrett says about Dan Pope being number one.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, I'm definitely better than Kelly. <clears throat> way, way
0: better. Um, Dan, thank you so much to all those listening at home. Thank you so much for joining us. A lot of great stuff here. We'll share all the information, all the notes. Thanks again. We'll see you next time. Thank
1: you very much. Appreciate it, Yoni.
0: As always, I'm going to ask you for a favor. Please listen, learn, and share our content and leave us a five-star review wherever you consume your true sports pod. That little act of kindness will go a very long way to helping us and helping our profession. You can reach out directly to me with feedback on the pod, what you loved, what you didn't love, and who you want to hear from. Also, if you want to join our team of outstanding sports PTs, shoot me a DM on Instagram at TrueSportsPT or email me directly, Yoni, Y-O-N-I, at TrueSportsPT.com. Because after all, this is what sports rehab should be. Look forward to hearing from you all soon.